Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Crossroad. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 7, verses 14 to 24, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Why Jesus is Our Teacher. Today we're studying John 7, 14 to 24, but let's start with verses 14 and 15. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Well, in the passage we've just read, we find Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. It is the Jewish Feast of Booths. It happened every October. And Jesus has entered Jerusalem quietly and without any fanfare. He has his disciples with him in the same way as every other teaching rabbi did, and he begins to teach them. His disciples probably sat on the pavement in the court of the temple in a circle surrounding him. There have been all sorts of other rabbis doing exactly the same with their disciples. He's drawing no attention to himself. He's simply teaching his own. But the city is filled with people talking about him. Some were saying he was a deceiver, and others were saying he was a good man. So I want you to imagine what happens next. Whenever we read the word the Jews in John, it's almost never a reference to the Jewish people. In John, it means the Jewish religious teachers, so please bear that in mind. And so imagine perhaps a leading rabbi, to his surprise, recognizing Jesus teaching his disciples, and he's outraged. And then he makes a loud announcement so that everyone else in the temple court, you know, perhaps even the thousands that are there, everyone's paying attention. Hey, it's Jesus. And this is what he says. How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? In other words, you know, here's a guy teaching his disciples. And in fact, he has no formal training. He's got no educational background. He's got no degrees on his wall. He hasn't read all the theological texts that every other rabbi in this place has read. And yet he considers himself a rabbi. I mean, what utter nonsense. And that's essentially what he says. And you must hear this. It's oozing with sarcasm. Where did this man get training? Now, let's get just a bit of background here. In Jesus' day, there was a saying that said that any person who studies the scripture without a rabbinical scholar is cursed. In other words, the rabbis of Jesus' day thought that no one could be self-taught in the Bible. And all they'd end up doing was spouting their own opinions without even knowing how ignorant they were. They wouldn't even know what they're talking about. So that's what someone said about Jesus, as loud as they could, so everyone else in the temple could hear, and sounds embarrassing. Well, we do know that rabbis in Jesus' day tended to teach by constantly quoting a list of scholars and then explaining what they said. You know, in essence, they were teaching all right, but they weren't actually teaching the scriptures. They were teaching rabbinic scholarship or rabbinic thinking of the day. And that's what Rabbi so-and-so has written about this text. Now, that's not unlike what happens in a great many theological circles today. You know, instead of teaching the Bible, we hear people quoting the scholars. You know, I recently read a a scholarly article which categorically said, and here I quote, biblical scholarship and faith don't mix well. It's not scholarship when theologians impose their own convictions upon the text. In other words, if you believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father, Well, that's how this article went. Well, you're a bad scholar. See, what that article meant to say is this. The best Bible scholars don't actually believe the Bible. 
You know, and a great many seminaries in which pastors are being trained today are trained in exactly those kind of settings. I find that both fascinating and astonishing. I mean, first, those so-called unbelieving scholars, of which there are many, well, those people are not objective, not even in the slightest. I mean, for starters, when anyone begins to read the Bible, one has to ask and answer the most basic of all questions, and it's this. What is it that I'm reading? Is it a revelation come from God or isn't it? And once that question is asked and answered, well, you'll immediately see where the bias comes from. See, these scholars are completely biased. They disbelieve in miracles. They disbelieve that God speaks. They disbelieve that the prophets spoke for God. And some of them, well, they don't even believe there's a God. Well, that's liberal modern scholarship. But how about in Jesus' day? Well, it was different then. A great many rabbis believed that there was an oral tradition, and it was handed down from the days of Moses, and it had equal authority to the written word. And furthermore, the handed down rabbinic traditions of the Bible must always be considered when trying to understand a text. So you never looked at a text on its own. They never tried to understand what Moses said and meant, or what Jeremiah or Isaiah said and meant. Rather, what did the traditions teach about that text? And that was their kind of scholarship. And that kind of scholarship, just like modern scholarship, kept people away from the actual Bible. It's for that reason that the Bible was just considered too hard for anyone to understand without training from the accredited professionals. In contrast, there was Jesus. He has no formal education. He never quoted any scholars when he taught. In fact, that's what everyone noticed about him. And Mark 1.22 says, And they, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So, for instance, Jesus would say, You have heard it said, and then he would say, But I say unto you. See, that was authority. Other teachers of the law would say it differently. They'd say, well, Rabbi Hillel says, or Rabbi Shammai says, something different. And, but Jesus wouldn't talk that way at all. He was utterly unique. He would say, I say unto you. I mean, no one had ever spoken that way. And what we find in John 7 is that people were marveling. I mean, he was quoting himself, and he was fascinating to listen to. Now, remember, I'm speaking about why we prefer Jesus as our teacher over all the scholars who have ever taught. But before we do that, let me explain something else. Now look, I'm not saying that pastors and Bible teachers shouldn't be formally trained. I think they should be. They should learn how to read from the original languages. They should have to go through the rigors of learning, of making sense of the plain meaning of the text. They should learn historical context. They should learn how to interpret various forms of literature. All of that's good, but here's the key. If they don't have faith in Christ, if they don't trust him implicitly in all things, they'll never understand this book called the Bible. Jesus is the key to understanding all of it. But in all of that, we must see that Jesus is unique to understanding the scriptures. I mean, twice in John 6, John records Jesus as saying, I have come down from heaven. Or consider Jesus' words in John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And furthermore, as John tells us in the first chapter of the book, Jesus himself is the word of God made flesh. 
And so Jesus claimed to be one with a father, claimed to come down out of heaven. He claimed to be the author of scripture and that the scripture was about him. Now, that's either true or it's not. And if it's true, then he is the final authority on the scripture. To try to understand the Bible without him, without him leaning over our shoulder to teach us, well, that's folly. Trying to understand the Bible without complete surrender to Jesus as Lord is to embark on failure. But now in the temple, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, the religious teachers of Israel are taking offense. Yeah, they say he's very gifted, but he has no education as we have. And since that's so, all he's doing is communicating ignorance. But keep on reading what happens next. John 7, 16 to 17. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So let's review. No one teaches the way Jesus does, and that's undeniable. Let me suggest an example. Let's say we're talking about love. Well, what is it? I remember discussing that in my university days, and I was in a biology class, and a a prof said that love is merely physiology. It has to do with levels of a chemical called dopamine in the brain. And others in my university, especially those in the sociology department, they said that love is a socially conditioned response. And theologians that I've sat under might say, well, there are in fact four different Greek words for love. And the various shades of meaning that each one has tells us something about love as a whole. But Jesus, well, he spoke like no one else. He told the story of a man who went up from Jericho. He fell among thieves and was left bleeding and dying on the road. Along came a hated Samaritan who had pity on him. And he put this man on his mule and took him to an inn and paid for his medical bills. Yeah, no one had ever taught like that before. It was astonishing to listen to. He was simple and yet profound, and people were left in awe. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked, or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience has been designed just for you. Well, we're heading to Israel in 2021, and we'd like to invite you to join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada team for this amazing trip from April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experiencing the sights, sounds, history, and the culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. This is a life-changing trip that you won't want to miss, and, and you have plenty of time to prepare. So to learn more and register, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebibletours.ca. I wish I had time to develop this theme, but let me say this. To this day, you just can't find anyone who teaches the way that Jesus did. He's simple to understand. Any child can understand what he says. Yet there's a depth that takes your breath away. Anyone can understand him, and yet the full nature of what he teaches overwhelms the seasoned scholar. And he's fascinating. He lifts your mind and heart to a level you wouldn't have thought possible. And of course, there's his authority. 
He quotes himself, but, and this is key, not only is his teaching style unique, not only are we in our world still mesmerized by what he taught, and yet no one teaches as he does. Now look, I know that doesn't prove that Jesus' teaching is true. I mean, remember the Pharisees and the scribes, I mean, they said, yes, he's incredibly gifted, but that's all he is. He's just spouting his own ideas, the ideas of a man who hasn't studied. So that then brings up the key issue. Why do we believe Jesus? Look again at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I hope you heard that. He's not self-taught. He's been taught directly by his father, God himself. Here's an example. Captain James Cook, the English explorer, is considered by many to be among the greatest of the world's explorers. He sailed around the world twice and made such detailed maps that cartographers or map makers complained that after him, they had nothing left to do but to admire his work. But in his day, Many European scholars were convinced that there was a vast continent in the Southern Pacific. But Cook returned to England informing the scholars of his day that there was none. It was just a series of tiny little islands, and the scholars laughed at him. I mean, they'd written and they'd read books about it, and they had mathematical theories about it, and all the intellectual community was in agreement. But Cook simply responded by saying he'd been there. I mean, what does scholarship mean if you haven't been there? And that's precisely what Jesus said. He was in the Father's presence, and that's why he never has to quote a scholar. I mean, can you imagine on the day when God's people stand in heaven and gaze upon God for the first time in wonder and awe that someone would turn to a scholar next to him and say, well, Dr. Know-it-all, I mean, what do you think about the nature of God? And the rest of us will say, I put a cork in it. I mean, what do we care what Dr. Know-it-all thinks? Right there is God himself. And that was Jesus. He was from God. His teaching was from God and not from man. Think about it. The one who created all things, the author of science and of history and of art and beauty, of religion and spirituality, he has spoken. I mean, what possible sense could it make to quote Rabbi Hallel at a time like that? And this is key. How we know that's true? Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. I mean, did you catch that? Now, I must stop here because I can almost hear the critics sneer. You know, the world in which we live, the way to get at truth is through science, in a laboratory, by a guy with a white lab coat. He's got really thick glasses. He's got a lot of degrees behind his name. So we get to truth by using the three pounds of gray matter, which is between our ears, and by our own objective, peer-reviewed research. It is reason and reason alone that leads to truth, or is it? And Jesus is, in fact, saying something quite different. He's telling us that intellectual arguments won't help you discern whether his teaching is from God. Rather, it has to do with submission to God. A number of months ago, I watched a television program, and it compared the thoughts of Sigmund Freud, who is, as you know, an atheist, with C.S. Lewis, who is, of course, a Christian. They would show segments of the life of Freud and the life of Lewis, and then a panel of very bright people, philosophers and medical doctors and scientists and others, would discuss either C.S. Lewis or Sigmund Freud. It was really a fascinating program, but there was one part I'm just going to never forget. 
One of the major contributors to the program, a man who identified himself as an atheist, shared how it was that he had become an atheist. He said that while he was in university, he decided that all the cool people at university were atheists, and so he had decided to join them. I was stunned. I mean, what had he just said? With all the rational arguments flying around the table, with believers arguing with non-believers about God and truth, it all came down to which group was cool and which one was liked. See, I'm reminded of something that the French philosopher Blaise Pascal once said. He said, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. In other words, when we choose about the really big things, that is about God and about truth, about that for which we live, well, did you know we, and I mean we as all human beings, abandon reason and we listen to the voice of our heart. It is our desires, our loves and hates, our fears and our ego that, that moves us to make the really big decisions. So let me say something that, that may surprise you. I've never met an atheist who's an atheist for intellectual reasons. Rather, first they became atheists by following their heart, and then they used their intellect to justify their position. That's precisely what Jesus is saying. If you submit to God's will, that is, if you surrender to him first, and then from a position of surrender consider Jesus, you're going to know if he's God or not. Now, of course, Jesus is not done. Let's keep reading verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Notice what is true of Jesus. He's not interested in self-promotion. He lays down his own glory. He seeks the glory of his Father. He's interested in God's fame. Now, I want to say something about ego. I spent a good many years in academic circles. I, I've learned a few things. And did you know there are some teachers who actually steal their students' PhD dissertations? And then they publish them as their own. And there are students who lock up their research because everyone around them is known to be a thief and wouldn't think twice about becoming famous by stealing someone else's stuff. Everyone is about their own glory. What motivates them isn't truth, but glory to have their name written on a book. Now, please don't be too negative about scholars. You know, it just so happens that's also true about everyone else in every other area of life. Whether you're talking business or about mothers who compare their children with the next person's children, we all seek our own glory in some way. In contrast to all of that, there's Jesus. He laid aside his glory and was found washing his disciples' feet. Until you can lay aside your own glory and seek the glory of God, you can't find the truth. That's what Jesus said. So let's get back to what he said. He's teaching his disciples in the temple. The Pharisees and teachers of the law had wanted to score an easy victory against Jesus by pointing out that he had no professional training, none whatsoever. And Jesus defends himself quite nicely, but he's not done. Let's read verses 19 to 20. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus now moves from defending himself to attacking the rabbis and now demands they also have a criticism to answer. So you're experts in the law of Moses, are you? You've studied and you have degrees in place and you call yourselves ready to teach the law. But in fact, you're not qualified to teach the law at all. Right now you're making plans to kill me, which is breaking the sixth commandment. You have no qualifications to teach. You violate the very law you claim to teach. So let's read to the end of our text, verses 20 to 24. 
The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Short interpretation of what's been said. Why should anyone trust your teaching, asked Jesus. You can't even be trusted in your interpretation of the Sabbath law. You accept the law only when it suits your purposes and you haven't thought it through and you reject the law when it doesn't. You are motivated by your own greed. Why is Jesus our teacher? Let me tell you the most basic of all reasons. No one ever taught as he did with humility, with clarity, and as one who has seen the face of the Father. It would be sheer madness to read the Bible without reading it through the lens of Jesus. He is the only accepted interpreter of Scripture. We trust him, and therefore we trust the whole Bible. John, thanks so much for your message today. Just a question, you know, is it possible for us to really be objective when it comes to our faith? Yeah, I mean, some people say because we can't be objective, you know, I mean, none of us can say anything uh, objective about the Scripture. Uh, So a couple of things we need to say. I mean, first of all, uh, we know for certain that Jesus was objective, having been in the presence of God and come to us. He is our teacher because we know that we can trust him. So we start there. But still some people say, well, how can I trust that I know what Jesus was really saying? And so I think we need to recognize that there are a number of things that happen. One is we need to confess that we're not objective at all. We know that. Uh, Sin, uh, self-promotion, all sorts of things have a bearing on how we look at the text. Having said that, we are confident that the Holy Spirit who is sent from Jesus will help us to put our own ego in check, and so that we will trust uh, fully in his leading, and uh, the scripture will become plain even when it offends us. So, you know, in this way, uh, at least there is some objectivity there. Thanks so much, John. A great word. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue in our series in the book of John, The Crossroad, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. 
That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.